0: Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg, and before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge, where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month, and whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 1159 p.m. Eastern time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erika.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. I wasn't mature enough to understand that that was gaslighting, but it was, he used that to make me feel like everything coming out of my mouth was false and I was the one who was crazy.
1: If there's abuse of any kind, you cannot go back to the good times because there will always be that dark shadow. Anyone screaming at you, name-calling, hitting you, mocking you, humiliating you, making you feel small, being threatened by your accomplishments, making you feel stupid, that's abuse. My name is Terry Cole and I'm a licensed psychotherapist and a transformation expert. Terry Cole is a psychotherapist
0: and relationship expert. For over two decades, Terry has been working with clients and her special gift is taking complex psychological concepts and making them actionable and accessible.
1: It's so incredibly painful and abusive for someone to do that. That's exactly what that is. It is psychological warfare. And abusive relationships are so scary because they can be so insidious.
0: You're listening to the Erica taught me podcast, the number one business podcast in the U S where we talk about entrepreneurship, money, and how to improve your life and achieve success. I'm your host, Erica Kohlberg. I'm a lawyer and personal finance expert with over 20 million followers on social media. Today, I'm interviewing psychotherapist and relationship expert, Terry Cole. In this episode, Terry discusses relationships, boundaries, and common manipulation tactics and how to pinpoint them. She also provides advice on how to ask for what we want in both our professional and personal lives. If you want to learn about things like how to set healthy boundaries, especially when it comes to the workplace, then this is the episode for you. Let's go ahead and jump in. I'm Erica Kohlberg. This is Erica taught me. And today we're here with Terry Cole. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between 6 to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between 6 to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's com slash invest. So the first thing I want to ask you is, With boundaries, a lot of us are not good at setting our own boundaries. What are kind of the biggest mistakes that you've seen people make when it comes to setting boundaries?
1: Well, part of it is we have to look at how do we interact in our relationships. And one of the biggest pain points that people come to me for is kind of saying yes when they want to say no. Sort of giving an insta-yes to things, not giving themselves permission to pause and think, I really want to do this. Because if we look at the ripple effect of what that does is now you agree to a bunch of crap you don't want to do. Now you feel either resentful of the other person. Somehow we blame them. We're like, Betty has some nerve asking me to do all of this as opposed to why don't I just bring and say no? You know what I mean? So either we do crap we don't want to do, we're resentful, or we like kind of bail at the last minute. We'll suddenly be like, oh, I think I have a migraine or I'm just too tired or I don't feel good. And that doesn't feel good either right? because neither one of those experiences is authentic.
0: Do you think people say yes to things that they don't necessarily want to because they are scared to upset the other person or because they're scared of FOMO, like they're scared of potentially missing out on an opportunity?
1: I would say I think it's both. It's either or, right? It can be FOMO because I feel like all of us have fallen into being like, oh my God, a party that starts at 11 p.m., three hours away from my house with all these cool people, sounds amazing. And you know on the day you're going to be like, why did I say yes to this? I do not want to do it. But I feel like if you do that enough, you learn to give yourself grace with the not wanting to upset the other person. That's probably more the thing. If you're a people pleaser, if you're a fear of rejection, if you don't like confrontation, if you... Are someone who's constantly trying to make sure everyone else is okay. It can be really hard to disappoint other people, and this is the whole thing with boundaries. It's it's not just learning to say no to people when you want to say no. It's so much more than that because it's learning to, as I would call it, talk true, to be authentic in your relationships. Because if we take it further down the road and go, what happens? if we're doing a bunch of crap we don't want to do, or if we're saying we like something that we don't because we don't want to hurt someone's feelings, is that saying yes when you want to say no, under the guise of being nice, isn't nice. It's dishonest. And what ends up happening is that we're in relationships with people who don't know us. I'll have people come into my therapy practice feeling this existential loneliness, even though they're surrounded by people all the time. And I'm like, yeah, but do those people know you or are you kind of just people pleasing your way through those relationships?
0: But what you were saying earlier, like it's for me, it's always I when I commit to things, it is a yes when I'm committing. It's just like an hour before when I'm at home and warm and relaxed. That's when I'm like, oh, I wish I would have said no, because I am such a homebody by nature that forcing myself to go out is always tough. So what do I do in those cases where it was a yes at one point, and then closer to the event, it becomes a no?
1: I think closer to the event, though, it's not really a no. It's just resistance. It's a resistance to become uncomfortable. It's resistance, if you're more of a homebody, to be vulnerable in the social space. It's resistance, emotional resistance. But what you really want to look at is when those events are done, are you glad you went, or do you wish you hadn't?
0: I noticed that about myself with these types of events. As I'm getting older, I'm more okay with, at the event, if I'm not having fun, I'm okay being the first to leave. It used to be I would always, out of respect for the host, I would always still to the, stay till the very end, and potentially because I didn't want to miss out too. But now I'm like, am I having fun or am I not? If I'm not, I'd rather be in bed watching Netflix.
1: Seriously. I have to say, I give myself permission. I leave any place, anytime. I always drive myself, no matter who I'm with, and I'm really mostly just spending people, you know, time with people I really like or know. But I feel like that makes it easier for me to take a risk and do something. If I don't tell myself I have to stay till the end, so I think mm-hmm. that's actually a really good sort of adaptive strategy to not be so stressed out. Like, hey, if I don't feel good or if I'm tired or if really it just sucks and I don't want to be here, I can and because there's a way to do this respectfully. There's a way to leave an event and say, I've got an early morning tomorrow, or whatever it is that you have, or I'm, I'm tired. This was lovely, but I really need to go home and rest, if that's the truth, without being rude. And I think that so much of the time, many of us, I mean, who was not conditioned to be a good girl, mm-hmm. to be nice, to make sure everyone else feels okay, to, you know, we're always sort of taught to at least women, I know, are raised and praised for being self-abandoning codependents, basically. Like, focus on other people. Is the ho- That's exactly what you said. You wanted to make sure the host was okay and that your action didn't cause them discomfort or make them think something bad, which meant that you would prioritize how you imagined they felt over how you actually felt. Right? And that breeds... Contempt and that breeds resentment.
0: One of the things I found interesting, I was taking your boundary quiz. And for those of you who are listening who want to take it, I highly recommend it. It's boundaryquiz.com. My results, I was a pushover. And as soon as I took that, my assistant who's here with me in filming was like, You are not a pushover. But I realized what I am. I morph depending on the situation. So I have a team, of course. And so my team does not think of me as a pushover because in my workplace, I have to be the one that guides things and directs everything. But I think in everything else in life, I really care about people-pleasing and making others around me happy. So maybe that is accurate to be a pushover in that sense. Do you see a lot of people like that who morph depending on the situation?
1: Yes, that's kind of the chameleon. It's
0: not good. Am I two-faced? <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: it's not being two-faced. It's probably you're an empath. You're probably a highly sensitive person. I am too. So we feel the feelings of other people. We, I could notice a micro-expression change on someone's face. And if I feel like I said something that made that change in a negative way, when I was younger, I could just change what I was saying, to get sort of the response I wanted from them. I didn't want them to be offended. I didn't want them to be hurt. All the, I didn't want other people, which is basically not knowing, of course, that's having disorder boundaries emotionally. But I didn't know, and it sounds like you can struggle with this too, like what is on my side of the street and what is on someone else's side of the street? Where when you are a high-functioning codependent, which happens to be my next book. I'm writing my book right now about it because it is so prevalent. We think the whole neighborhood <laughs> is our side of the street to keep clean. And it's not. Other people have, you know, they're, they're allowed to have their own experiences. They need to be sovereign from us, right? We are independent of them. They're independent of us. But when you are a high-functioning, codependent, chameleon, it's like we feel like we're responsible for how they feel. But you're not. And it's actually impossible. Like, you can't be. But it's so incredibly common to feel overly responsible for others. And that is an emotional boundary that's um, disordered emotional boundaries.
0: Interesting. I think that describes me perfectly. Because I was also thinking, if you ask different friend groups of mine, like, what is Erica like? I always try to balance out. The people that I'm with. So if I'm with people who are introverted and very quiet and like to listen to them, I'm like the party animal. I'm the extrovert. Like I'm always talking, talking, talking. But now as I've grown on social media, I hang out with a lot of people who are social media celebrities or whatever you want to call them, they're very extroverted, very talkative, very life of the party. So I become this like introverted listener. And so they'll describe me as, oh, Eric is very quiet. Like, <laughs> so I'm, I am I morph.
1: Right, but it's like you were keeping the homeostasis, right? The balance of the group in your mind. So rather than having how you're being in that group coming from a place of this is naturally what's coming up for me. You are really um, dialed into your external environment and the energy that you're feeling. And I wonder if you went into different group situations being committed to being how you feel, how you actually feel, as opposed to responding. I mean, you're you're actually, it's more a reaction. When, When our behavior... Is being fueled by others. I do understand it though. It's almost like in in as a therapist, if I'm talking to a client who's upset and they've got big energy, my vibe gets even more calm, gets even more still because I'm just naturally trying to balance what's happening, right? Obviously, as a therapist, my energy is not gonna get jacked up because theirs is I I would be a terrible therapist. <laughs> But I know what you mean by saying you're you're responding to what's going on. But the question is, how does that make you feel when you leave there? Do you feel succinctly and accurately seen and known?
0: I don't know. I know I have been more aware of how I feel after interactions because I'm— I'm told you have to be like thinking about whether people drain your energy or give you energy. And sometimes I'll walk away from events or gatherings with friends and I feel excited. I'm like ready to keep going out. And sometimes I just feel like, oh my gosh, I got to go to sleep. Yeah. But I don't know which one causes which. I don't think I've figured that out.
1: Well, part of it is what you could do and everybody listening and watching could do is you can do an inventory. So basically it's like a relationship inventory and you look at the people you spend time with, and then start keeping track of, when I'm done being with this person, do I feel energized or do I feel exhausted? We start to be able to go, oh, this is interesting. This is a pattern of how I feel. And that tells us, because listen, we all have friends who want to talk about the same thing. They're in a terrible relationship. They can't stop talking about the relationship. They're like, you're not going to believe what Bob did. And you're like, I believe what Bob did the first time he told me Bob was an idiot. Like, <laughs> you're the only person who keeps being surprised by Bob's behavior. But that can be incredibly draining. That's someone who is more an energy vampire, unconsciously. Mm-hmm. I'm not, it's not a blame thing. But there's a truth thing that we have to get for ourselves about Who is filling up our bucket as we are filling up their bucket? And what relationships really just pour from our bucket and we leave and we're like, uh, I need like a nap.
0: If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura. And I'll also leave the link in the show notes. You know? Okay. So then on that, if you are doing this inventory and you start to realize this one Julie friend is constantly draining my energy. Mm -hmm. When do you decide whether you should move on from that friendship or relationship?
1: Well, you learn to set boundaries with Julie because she might have great qualities. And perhaps you're just laying yourself bare. You've given Julie the impression that you're a never-ending well of compassion and listening. Right? So a lot of times it's, we don't need to jump from the inventory to... What action should we take? Meaning, keep the friend or ditch the friend. The action that we're going to take is to to set boundaries. Is to, if you know that Julie wants to talk about the same thing and she calls you at night, even though you go to bed early, you are not going to pick up her call. You're going to let other people know. If you, like, we start setting boundaries for ourselves, protecting our energy, our bandwidth, our time, our money, all the things. And you might be so surprised at how people respond to asserting boundaries. I've had people be like, oh, that's amazing. So you turn your phone off at this time. So now I know that's not a good time to call. Or I simply say. I mean, I'm, obviously, I'm a boundary boss. I wrote a whole freaking book on it. So <laughs> clearly, my boundaries, I mean, you call my cell phone. It's like, hey, don't leave a message because I'm not going to listen to it. That's it. Just don't. My home phone says the same. This is for emergencies only. Don't, I haven't listened to a message on this phone in 21 years. I'm not starting now. <laughs> like, I'll be funny about it, but I want to let people know because I'm managing expectations when we clearly assert our boundaries. And let's quickly establish what they are. According to me, your boundaries are your preferences, your desires, your limits, and your deal breakers, like the non negotiable things in your life. And these things, it's not enough to just know what they are, which most people don't even know what their preferences, desires, limits, or deal breakers are, honestly. But you can't just know them. You have to know them and then have the ability to transparently communicate them. Mm. And if you know them and you don't communicate them, you're, you're unlikely to get your needs met. Right, Just thinking about our preferences doesn't help the other person know what they are. We need to be able to talk about them. So I think that's the beginning place. The reason why it matters is that your your, um, preference limits and deal-breakers, they're not just your boundaries. They're also the things that make you uniquely Erica and make me uniquely Terry. So they're important. And I feel like many of us have been trained Having a preference makes us extra. We're like, too much, Mm -hmm. right? And it's not true. Learning to negotiate, learning to share, this is my preference. This is how we teach people to interact with us. This is how people learn how to love us, is when we tell them what we like and what we don't like. So an easy way of thinking of your boundaries is think about them as your own personal rules of engagement. They let other people know what's okay with you and what's not okay with you. And hopefully, they do the same for you. This is how we learn to treat people in a way that makes them feel loved. This is how people learn to treat us in a way that makes us feel loved.
0: So breaking that to the from the very fundamental stage, I think that you strike me as someone who you probably know all your boundaries, whether there's 10 or 20 you know them. I don't think I know what my boundaries are. So how would I begin to list my boundaries to know what they are?
1: Well, we're going to start with doing a resentment inventory. Okay. Because usually, if we can start to identify where we're holding resentment in life, whether it's for a job, whether it's for a person, this tells us either a need is going unmet in some way. So that could mean a boundary is being crossed, or that a boundary needs to be established. And this is the beginning. So if you think about it right now, you don't have to tell me, but you know where you feel upset, irritated, annoyed. What relationships are they in? A lot of times it's with family of origin, right? Because we're raised a particular way, we grow in life, and then, you know, a lot of times the family system doesn't grow, and they want us to stay the same. You know, and that's not everybody. But I'm just saying, like with my therapy clients, I see a lot with people having boundary issues with family of origin. So once you know what your resentments are, then you can go, okay, I feel resentment towards Bob. Why? Because Bob asks me to do X, Y, and Z, or because Bob is a slacker on my team, and I pick up the slack for Bob. All right, the emphasis has to be on you, right? You pick up the slack for Bob potentially because you don't want the team to fail. But it's, you don't have to do that and you are doing that. So either have a conversation with Bob. Hey, Bob, your stuff is due on Wednesday. The last three things we had, you handed your stuff in late and I felt like I did more than my share. So I'd like to make a simple request that you do your full part and that you hand it in on time so that we can all succeed in having this thing be done when it's supposed to be done or whatever. So you can learn the language of boundaries. I'd like to make a simple request is a really easy lead-in to anything that you're asking for, because truthfully, any request is simple. doesn't mean the person's going to do it, but it's a non-threatening way. And when we need to make a boundary with people that we really love, we can always start with sweetness.
0: Mm.
1: We can always start with, I love that you want to spend time with me, and I'd appreciate it if you checked in with me before you bought tickets to something because my calendar is busy and I hate to say no and I hate to disappoint you, right? That's a loving way to say, hello, check in with me first before you buy tickets because I may not be able to make it. But it's acknowledging their effort and that their heart was in the right place. But you're also managing expectations because you're not going to change your calendar to make yourself available to an event that you didn't agree to, right?
0: What about a simple one? One of my pet peeves I realized is when people send voice memos that are three plus minutes long and it could have been summarized in a written text that's, you know, a paragraph. How do I tell people to stop doing that?
1: Literally, you just say it. You're, you, you can say it funny, right? We can be funny and say, hey, I've got, a, I've got an attention deficit limit. Please, no voice notes over 90 seconds is the max voice note I can tolerate. Please. We can be funny. You can say, it's me. It's me. Because when it actually happens, and it's also okay to share this, but I can tell you what happens. For me, if I get a voice note that's over 90 seconds long, I go, I'm going to listen to that later. But I'm already resentful. I'm already like, why are you dominating five minutes of my life? Just put it in a freaking text so I can read it and not have to sit here. I can't hear. I'm in New York. (laughs) Like... There's a million reasons why a five-minute voice note is annoying, so I'm with you, Erica, on that. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like we can do it with humor, right? You can just say, hey, I've got a rule about voice notes, please. Make it funny, make it light, have the f- laughing emoji, but tell the truth. And you can, or you can just say, I find that if it's over a certain thing, I'll say I'm going to listen to it later, and a lot of times I forget, and I don't want to miss what you're sending me.
0: That makes sense. And I can see how these boundaries, once we build up from figuring out what you resent, then you kind of understand what your boundaries are and then you set them, whether you use them with humor or not. I can see how this works very well on equal playing fields. But I guess my next question is then, what about where there is a power dynamic involved? And the most common one that I think a lot of my audience can relate to is trying to set boundaries with your boss. How do you do that? Because it's not like I can go tell my boss – hey, don't send me emails after 4.30 p.m. Right.
1: Well, here's the thing. This is where, and I do a whole thing on boundaries and business because it's such a common problem. So you have to be proactive when it comes to, before you get into a situation, whether it's before you take a job, whether it's before you take on a new client, you have to be so clear. So if we're talking about entrepreneurs, you need so much clarity. What is, what is the way you like to work? If everyone, on my team, I have people from all over the world who work for me. We all work on New York time. If that doesn't work for you, and you live in Malaysia, then you can't work for me. Because I can't be worried about your sleep, and I'm such an empath. I will be if I wasn't super clear up front as to this is what it is. We use Voxer. I want to do a voice thing. If you don't like that, too bad, because here's the deal. This is not a democracy. And I feel like there's something about, there's a younger generation of entrepreneurs where there's a lot of stress and people are asking me questions and coming into my masterminds and my groups being like, well, you know, I'm worried about the way this person's feeling. I was like, listen, this is your business. Mm -hmm. There's not, you're on the hook. It's your bank account. You're paying all these people. So, I pay people for their brains, of course, but being super clear about what the expectation is, right? Of course, I want people's expert opinions. That's why I hire them. But they're not weighing in like their feelings about the way we're doing it. When I want to do it a particular way, that's the way that it's going to go. When you are in a work situation, be so clear to the best of your ability upfront as to what the expectation is. What is it, their expectation from you? Do they think you're working on weekends? Do they think that you, they can email you at 11 p.m. at night? And if they do, do they understand? Can you say, oh, you can email me at 11 p.m. at night and I will not be checking that until tomorrow at 10 a.m. or whatever, you know? So the culture of the company is really important because you could ask people what the culture is. They can tell you, you know, but if you, hopefully HR will tell you the truth about what the culture is. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but being proactive is the be- to the best of your ability can be helpful. But you're right. When there is a power differential, the way you would approach your boss is definitely going to be different than the way you would approach a coworker or a subordinate. It just makes sense that that's reality. So part of it is you have to get clear about what you got yourself into because if you joined a culture, uh, you know, And you're a young lawyer and there's an expectation that you're just going to work like 18 hours a day because that's what everyone does. That's what you sign on for. So if that doesn't work for you, either do something different. You can try to change that system. I'm not saying don't. But if that's how it was when you got there and people told you, we stay here, we work all weekend. That's what you sign on for. So be clear yourself about what it is that you want to do. If you do have to approach your boss about something, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I'm off the grid. On the weekends, I go to my place in the woods and I have spotty reception or whatever your situation may be. Can this wait until Monday, right? You can say that. But if you sign on to a culture that works through the weekend, that works till midnight, that is not going to be well-received.
0: I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband, and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it, I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free, and you know I don't gatekeep. so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free built credit card built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent and there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. There's no annual fee for the credit card and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. You'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com slash built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash built. Do you think that you can test those boundaries because... My story, of course, I graduated from law school and then I went straight to work in big law. Big law, corporate law is known for being very, very tough. You're routinely working 100-hour weeks. So in some ways, I knew what I had signed up for. But I think a part of me always wished that I could change the culture a little bit. But then a part of me was scared to push back at all because I realized that if I push back too much, well, then there's... Twenty other fresh eyed Harvard law graduates ready to take my position, and it was I was on the chopping block if I pushed back too much, so I don't know on on one hand, I agree with what you're saying. you have to understand what kind of culture you're going into and what you're agreeing to, mm-hmm. but I also feel like there must have been a way to set a few boundaries at the law firm in it, but I was obviously not brave or strong enough to do that, but mm-hmm. i I can't just feel like. I f- have to feel like there's a better answer than telling people you either pick the culture and stay with it or you leave. Like well, you always have
1: people who are like the norma rays of that industry, or right? the people who change inhumane practices and policies, but at the expense of what? Right? There's always whistleblowers. Of course it's wrong to work a hundred hour weeks. Yeah, who's who's doing their best work doing that? Nobody. You can't. know, I guess maybe when you're 24, maybe you can do it, but you can't do it for that many years without being completely burnt down. So I do think that there are things that you can do, but there is a cost because we can't control the system. The system is a huge machine, lots of different systems.
0: Okay. So now walking us through what we've done, we've done trying to figure out what your potential boundaries should be by figuring out what makes you resentful. And then listing those boundaries, I would say, above that. And then above that, starting to set those boundaries with people, whether it be using humor or whatever feels comfortable to you. What is the level after that that I need to be thinking about?
1: Well, boundary bullies is kind of the the next level. Or in the book, I call them boundary destroyers. So we have repeat offenders where sometimes... It takes so much energy, right? You, you get your boundary language together. You're going to have a conversation. You have the conversation. The person's like, okay, if I'm going to be late for dinner, I'm going to let you know instead of leaving you sitting here. And then four days later, they're late for dinner. They don't let you know. They leave you sitting there. So when, we, when we're changing ingrained boundary dances, it'll take, it takes a, little, a minute. So that's okay. Like maybe, maybe they agreed and then they forgot. That's okay. You can remind them, hey, babe, we talked about this on Monday, and you said you'd let me know. I'm good, just going to reiterate that it would really mean a lot to me if you would let me know if you're going to be late so that I'm not sitting here waiting for you and that the food doesn't get cold and we don't end up sort of fighting about it. And the, they say, okay, I'm, I'm, you're right. I'm sorry I forgot, but I'm going to do it. If, if you continue to have this repeated behavior where it's a promise to change behavior, an agreement that they will, and then not change behavior, that is boundary bullying. That is what I call a repeat offender. And in that case, it's not enough to just set a boundary. We have to set a boundary with a consequence. Because, like, what inspires us to change our behavior? As human beings, I hate to say it, but a little bit of pain is probably the most um, motivating thing because if nothing changes besides you being pissed, besides you being annoyed, if that's the only thing, it may not be enough. So, and again, I'm not even saying that the other person is like a terrible human being because of this. It's just we get in ingrained behaviors and it can take a minute. So, if the next time the person is late, you say, hey, you know, this is now the fourth time and I have to say, like, I'm over it. So, If you do it again, I'm actually gonna just eat without you. Put your food back in the fridge, and I'm gonna be. I'm really mad that you're not keeping your word, or I'm really upset, or really bums me out because I love our time eating together, and now you breaking this boundary is getting in the way of that. I'm really. I'm upset. So this now we add a consequence, and we only add a consequence that we're a willing to do. So we're not. You know, it's not like an a fake ultimatum where we're like, I'm going to do this. If you don't do the thing you say, that's, of course, not effective. And we want it to be commensurate to sort of the crime, so to speak, right? So it's not going to be like a ridiculous consequence for something small. So I feel like this is a good example of someone being late, not letting you know. And you would be shocked, especially if it's kind of ritualistic that you eat together, how much it could impact them that you put the food away, you eat without them. And that may be enough for them to go, I'm going to remember because that didn't feel good. And it made the whole evening kind of like uncomfortable because of it. So I feel like one of the things that's really difficult for people is they take it so personally. It, It hurts your feelings when someone doesn't remember or when someone says they're going to do something and they don't. And we have to make a distinction between... Ingrained behavior, which is repeat offenders sometimes, these are in long-term relationships where we've sort of been doing the same boundary dances forever. That's going to take a minute, and it's really good to expect there's going to be some pushback when we start putting boundaries in place because people feel threatened. They love us. They don't want us to change so much that we no longer love them. Right? This is sort of the, the fear in the mind. So that's one example, but boundary destroyers is a really different that's a different ball of wax because there's are people who have no desire or even ability to respect your boundaries. And a lot of times this may be someone with a mental health diagnosis. It could be narcissistic personality disorder or histrionic disorder. There's a bunch of different things. Even bipolar untreated could create this super manipulative behavior.
0: Can you give me one or two examples about these manipulation tactics?
1: Sure. Um, well, one that's popular on the interweb now. People are talking about two that are popular. One is love bombing. I don't know what that is. Oh, (laughs) excellent. So love bombing is when you get into a relationship with someone and they just shower you with gifts and you're amazing and sex is awesome. And they're like, I'm whisking you away to Paris for the weekend. Like it's, it's all ah, so heady and so amazing. And they're saying how special you are because you're with them, of course. And it's basically shock and awe to get you to your knees of like, oh my God, this is my person. I'm madly in love. And then there's the flip is going to be switched and they're going to start devaluing you. This is the cycle of abuse in narcissistic relationships. But I always say to my therapy clients, be mindful. If something seems too good to be true, it probably is. If it's too much too soon, right? If it's If you're like, could anyone be this amazing? Could anyone be this perfect? No. And if they're rushing you, if they're like, oh, my lease is up and this is perfect and we love each other and we know we want to get married, let's move in together and you've been together three weeks. As soon as my client starts talking that way, I'm like, uh, put on the brakes. (laughs) That's a little soon. And if it's good, it'll be good in three months or three years. But if that person is rushing you, but do you see how it's a manipulation tactic? Because it's getting you under their spell to then start to devalue. And a lot of times the last phase of this cycle of abuse is discard. Where they break up with you. they It's super painful. It's a mm. terrible cycle. So that's one manipulation tactic, love bombing. And the other is gaslighting. Where they're just, they want control of you. And so they are really messing with your ability to trust your own reality. They, you know, if you're upset about something, they're like, you know, I'm, I'm really worried about you. You know, I don't want to say anything. But your sister's worried too, she told me. Other people are talking about, you've kind of been off the rails. I'm concerned. Use concern. But really what they're trying to do is make you not trust yourself and what's going on? They're letting you know other people are talking about you. Um, so, faux concern is one of the things with gaslighting. Mm. Um, straight up lying. You'll be like, "Okay, so we agreed that we would talk before we agreed to go away with your family," and they're like, "No, I never said that." I don't know. Your memory—something's up with your memory. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a little concerned because we, we did not say that. You just said that. That never happened. Literally, that never happened. They're lying to your face, but. If you're a decent person and you're not manipulative like that, you're sort of like, maybe it is me. Like, maybe I am losing it. And all of those things are psychological, emotional, mental boundary violations.
0: I can totally relate. In law school, I was in a bad relationship where for the first time I started experiencing panic attacks and I had never experienced them, so I was very scared about what was going on. So I was, I would be, like, on the floor hyperventilating and crying. And my boyfriend at the time, he recorded me, and he was like, I'm going to just show you how ridiculously you look after the fact. That's why I have to record you. And he would call me crazy to the point where, like, I started believing it. And at the time, I wasn't mature enough to understand that that was gaslighting, but it was, he used that to make me feel like everything – Coming out of my mouth was false, and I was the one who was crazy.
1: It's so incredibly painful and abusive for someone to do that. Like, I'm so sorry you had that experience, because it's brutal.
0: I haven't thought of that in years.
1: Right, but that charge that you feel, that's like how there's something still active in there for you. Talking about it is so good, so talking about it is the way to go. Yeah. But that's exactly what that is. It is psychological warfare. And another thing that happens is reactive anger or reactive abuse where someone will just goad you and goad you and criticize and do all until you explode. And then they're like, you're the one. Look at what you did literally absolving themselves of everything they did to get you to that breaking point. I mean, abusive relationships are so scary because they can be so insidious and where no one knows what's going on. And from the outside, people are like, such a great guy, amazing, he loves you so much. You're like, "Uh, doesn't feel that way, but you don't know who to talk to about it. It's so scary. It's shameful. We feel like, how did I find myself here? Or maybe I'm perceiving this wrong. Maybe it is me. And that is when the gaslighting is working because we, exactly what you shared, we are doubting ourselves, who we are. And so being aware of these tactics and what if someone ever pulls out a phone to film you while you were upset or while you were arguing or whatever and to use it later like that literally as a red flag where you should be packing your bringing bags and getting the hell out of there. Because it's such a humiliating thing to do to someone. And these are, again, all boundary issues that can be so complicated to identify and to go, okay, if I do identify it, now what do I do?
0: One thing I was thinking about as you were teaching me about the love bombing and then also the gaslighting is how kind of I can see them intertwined. I think... I can only speak for myself, obviously, but there have been times where I've been in relationships that I knew were going bad, but all I could remember was the times that were really good, and I had this hope held out for maybe we can go back to the good times. Do you think that's realistic? Like if a relationship goes sour, should you trust your gut to get out, or can sometimes things be repaired and you can go back to the good times?
1: It depends on how egregious... It went bad. It depends. If there's abuse of any kind, my feeling is you cannot go back to the good times because there will always be that dark shadow. Unless the other person is like, I'm totally willing to get into therapy with you three times a week. We're going to figure this out. But it will be unlikely. Right? So some, anyone screaming at you, name-calling, hitting you, Psych- mocking you, humiliating you, making you feel small, being threatened by your accomplishments, um, making you feel stupid, that's abuse. And unless they get like a lobotomy, like I don't see how that person is changing. If you are capable of that, unless you really, really want to change, even if you feel terrible, that's why it's a cycle of abuse so much of the time person does feel terrible they don't have control of themselves right they do not have emotional self-control then then there's the i'm sorry i'll never do it again then there's the thing that triggers it that you don't even know what is going to be the thing that triggers it and then it's the same thing over sometimes it's with buying gifts to make up sometimes it's with giving you know maybe we'll go away together or just being sorry or or beating up on themselves. They'll be like, I'm a terrible person. What is wrong with me? I don't know why you stay with me. All of it is manipulation though. And so my feeling is, if a relationship grows apart, is it possible to go back to the good times? Sure, if both people want to work on it and can understand why we grew apart. But if you're talking about a relationship that was joyful or seemed that way or was very... Um, chemistry-driven, where it was like, we can't get enough of each other, and then you get into a cycle of abuse, I think it's unlikely, unless there is intervention that both people want equally and are committed to. Because that's a hard cycle to change. Because I don't believe someone who's an abuser is wanting to be that. But they are being that. You know? So I, that's, that's a long, that was literally the longest way around the barn to answer your question. I hope I answered it.
0: No, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And so if you are in that position where you feel like you need to get out, what are the ways to safely end this kind of toxic relationship?
1: Do not reveal your cards. Do not tell your person you're leaving. Do not try to get them to talk you out of it. Like, when you're really ready to go, this is a stealthy operation. Let the close people in your life know what's happening. When you plan to leave, have other people there. If it's possible that your person travels, leave when they're not there. Take only what you need or take everything. If maybe they're going to be traveling for a week and you'll have plenty of time. But my feeling is, if there's abuse they're going to try to stop you from leaving. And they may be violent in trying to stop you. Um, There's also helplines that you can call to get advice on how to do it. And I actually wrote a whole blog about how to safely leave an abusive relationship because my fear is, you know, we can inspire people to realize it's bad and they should go, but it's very important for your own safety. It's a very strategic and meticulous plan that the other person is unaware of, if they, especially if they are violent. And you involve other people. And you, you, can, you can even involve the police. Like, so you ask them to be there. Like, but usually if you involve enough other people, I mean, listen, all situations are different, I can't say, but you're definitely way better than trying to do it on your own. You know, having five friends there. Because abuse and shame, all of this thrives in secrecy. So one of the liberating parts of getting out of of an abusive relationship is telling one or two people who are trustworthy so that you're not alone. Because you have nothing to feel ashamed about. I mean, listen, this happens. It happens to nice people. It happens to empaths, right? Narcissists are attracted to empaths, right? Because the narcissist is like, hey, it's all about me. And the empath is like, amazing. It's all about you. And it's sort of this match made in heaven until all hell breaks loose, but...
0: I think that's one of the things that I've learned as I've gotten older is the things that we suffer in silence about because we feel like no one else will understand and no one else is going through it, it's usually because everyone else feels the same way. They suffer in silence. And you can be in a room with 100 people who are suffering silently about the same thing, but you'll never know because it is so scary to tell people what's going on. And I just think, like everything in my life that when I discovered it or let's say, you know, my depression or anxiety or I'm having trouble having kids naturally, so having to go through IVF, like everything when I discovered th- these things, I felt so alone and I felt like that I was the only one. But the more I start to be open about it, and obviously I'm very uh, sorry, I'm very fortunate to have a platform where I can open up and try to show other people that like, this is normal. The more I open up about it, the more I realize like in that room of hundred people, other people are feeling the same thing. Right? Oh my God. Yes. And how, how good it feels. The
1: camaraderie, the normalization, because that's what you're talking about.
0: I don't talk about my emotions at all. So I'm very, very bad. <laughs> that's
1: okay. Listen, I'm the, there's nobody better than me right? Yeah. (laughs) Who better than a therapist? But what you're saying is, it's generous though, for you to have the courage to talk about what's real for you, talk about your struggles. You know, Deepak Chopra would say that if you go through something that's painful and you're finding ways to alleviate your pain or you found answers Mm -hmm. or that you must share with others, if you discover something that could lessen the suffering of others, that sharing it, you know, he he said, to be funny, was like putting a you know, brick in your karma bank, you know? But I think that what you're saying and how good it feels to know that you're not alone, right? And how good it feels for them to know that they're not alone. And none of us are alone. That's the whole thing about this needing to be perfect and this needing to, like, what this image that we need to project. It's like... There's something so incredibly powerful about having no shame, about just deciding that you're not going to be ashamed. I am not ashamed of my life. I also don't do IBM. Anyway, um, you know, like all of these things, because this is the human experience. It's not a curated feed on Instagram. This is life is that it's beautiful and it's horrifying. It's amazing and it's terrible. All at the same time, and as humans, we are so complex. We can hold these differing emotions. We can have an experience in a day that is both of those things. But when you have a platform that you have and you're willing to share your humanness, it's not even just your human struggles, because humanness means struggles. We're just flawed. It is a gift to every person. You are modeling behavior that says there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with IVF. There's nothing wrong with having anxiety. That's it. There isn't because so many of us have these experiences. So go you, Erica.
0: If you could wave your magic wand and do one thing to help A ton of people. I mean, I know that in your practice, you've seen so many people with, in different stages of life with different problems. What's like the one thing you would magic wand tap them with to to help them?
1: I would want them to realize that what they think, how they feel, what they want needs to matter to them more than what anyone else thinks, wants, feels. That's what I would want. I would want them to understand the power in prioritizing their own thoughts, feelings, and desires because in doing that, it changes the way you go through the world. It's not about being selfish. It's about being authentic and that we need them. We need your authentic self, tears and all. You need my authentic self with all the experiences that I've had. You don't need me saying yes to you when I want to say no. You don't need me blowing sunshine. We need the truth. And anytime time we don't do that in life, and there's so many people who come to me, they're suffering so much because they're not doing it. We feel existentially alone.
0: What exercises would you do to help people get closer to that, understanding what they really want and making sure those are a priority?
1: I have this thing that I do in the beginning of the book, and I do it with clients and stuff and in my courses where it's an okay and not okay list. So I would suggest that you go through every area of your life, from your business to your career to your relationships to your family to your health to your wellness to your finances, all of them, and you write down. Start with the what's not okay, because that will get you to what you want. And I feel like we've been taught and indoctrinated into taking one for the team being like i don't want to be a complainer i don't want to be a drama queen it's fine i don't want you to live a life that's fine i want you to live a life that you love a life that thrills and fulfills you and that cannot be built on you think saying that's fine fine is not good enough for you so if you do this list and it can even look like let's say in your office at home you have a caustic light that's an overhead light that you friggin hate the light so much. And every time you turn <laughs> it on, you're like, ah, why? You know what? Stop using that light. Get a floor lamp. Put a, put a softer light up there. Like those small things, we can prioritize our comfort and prioritize our preferences easily. We just don't. And so this list of what's not okay is a really simple place to start. What's not okay in your relationship? I don't like that my husband doesn't, you know, doesn't call me, but he texts me or my boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, right? Write that down. You could make a simple request that they communicate with you differently. It's like what we're doing with this list is we're identifying what am I tolerating Mm. and why? I don't need to. There's so many small changes that you could make that will make your life feel so much more fulfilling and joyful, and comfortable for you.
0: Can we use me as the guinea pig? Can we go through maybe creating five things for my list? I mean, how would you dig that out of me? Because I I understand the specific examples, but I'm not sure how how to actually go about creating that full list.
1: Okay, so let's start with five areas of your life. Let's think about your home, where you live. Is there anything about your home that bothers you? Is there anything about your home that's annoying to you?
0: Well, right now we're on the road, we're traveling, And I'm annoyed when I'm ready to go to sleep and turn off the lights and my husband is still working and has his computer lights on.
1: Okay. So you can, have you made a simple request about
0: this? (laughs) Yes, but it's a very small room. So there's not much, like, there's not really good compromise.
1: Well, do you wear an eye mask?
0: No, because I have these fake eyelashes on, so I can't wear an eye
1: mask. Well, there are eye masks you can put on that are cupped. Oh, really? Yes. So you can go on, you can get them on Amazon. (laughs) I highly suggest while you're on the road that you get those. I actually love mine because I don't like anything on my lashes. So you'll love them.
0: Okay. All right. So
1: that's one change you can make. Next. What about in your um, family of origin? Relationships with, do you have siblings? Do you have parents? Do you have any people?
0: Yeah. I have my sister and my parents.
1: All right. Do you want to talk about this?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My sister is not good at keeping in touch with me.
1: Okay. So, and how are you keeping in touch with her?
0: I try to text her, but she'll send like one word responses. Okay.
1: So have you had a conversation? No. (laughs) Okay. So your job, your homework there is going to be, you're going to have a conversation and say, Hey, I love you and I miss you. And I find it kind of unsatisfying. Our texting stuff is unsatisfying. What would your preference be? Would you be willing to set a time on Sundays for us to talk for 20 minutes? Would you be willing to, I mean, to FaceTime? I'd love to see you. I miss you. I love you.
0: Okay. Okay? Love it.
1: Okay. Moving on. What about with your um, business?
0: The biggest thing is I feel like people on my team sometimes don't take full accountability and then everything falls on me. And the whole point of me hiring a large team is that I don't have to deal with everything.
1: Okay. So that's on you because you're the boss. So you're taking it on. Here's the thing with highly capable women. You're high-functioning codependent, which is exactly what I'm writing about, right? <laughs> because we can do the thing, we do the thing. So there has to be some kind of a consequence in place or some kind of a real conversation, not just being annoyed for a minute, not just a terse interaction, because it can be like that too, where you're like, fine, great, and then, then you just do the thing. So we need to have a clarifying boundary conversation about why the thing didn't get done the way that it was supposed to. And you have to have a debrief meeting, which is hard to do when you want people to like you, and when you're an empath, and when you're kind of a people pleaser in your heart of hearts or a chameleon, but it has to happen. And you can institutionalize this in a way that anytime there's an issue, there's always a debrief where we go, okay, because it's not about blaming and shaming or humiliating. It's about we're going to learn to not have this happen again. And it is about saying, hey, Bob, that this actually is on you because it's your responsibility. So we got it done this time, but I need to know what loops weren't closed, like what actually happened that we got here. So I always, whenever there's a, a misstep in my team, we have a debrief and everyone knows we're going to do it. So it isn't like, Bob, I'm calling you out on the carpet. You're in trouble. It's what is optimal for the business. And this is a mindset for your business that I have for mine. None of this is personal. I don't need any more friends. I love the people who work for me, but I got plenty of friends. Our only mission is to run my business optimally. That's it. So if something happens that is not optimal, I go, okay, this was our goal. This wasn't optimal. What led up to it so we can change our best practices? Mm. That's what I would say there. Brilliant. How about um, health and wellness?
0: I Health, I don't really treat my body well just because I work really hard and it's easy for me to say I don't have time to work out. I'm sure I have time, but I don't prioritize it. So I have a lot of health issues right now.
1: <laughs> yes, and you're going to continue to have a lot of health issues until you decide that you... Are worthy and really understand that there is no business without you. And when you are fried, that the work is compromised. When you don't feel well, it's all compromised. You are the source. You have to be in excellent health. Whatever you need to do, whatever you need to change, because that whole workaholic part of you, because you're still young, come right? That like, I mean, compared to me. So there, there is a part of you that unconsciously thinks you're just like the energizer bunny, it's fine, I'm always fine, I'm always fine. No. Autoimmune disorders, there's all these things that start happening to women in my therapy practice because they work so much because you're so highly capable, but you won't be for long if you don't figure it out. So you you know what you're not doing for yourself. And I would say, don't focus necessarily on the forward motion stuff like working out. You can, but I want you to focus on meditation, rest, mindfulness, because that will do more for you than going to soul Cycle.
0: I'm not good at that. This was the biggest therapy session I've had in the past five years. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a referral. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So we have a closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me. But really, today is all about Terry Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away being able to say, Terry taught me this?
1: Then I'm worthy of my boundaries, of my desires, of what I want. I'm worthy of creating a life I love.
0: Thank you so much. I loved it. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Terry Cole. If you want to learn more, I'll include a link of Terry's video lesson with downloadable exercises to help you determine where you could use better boundaries in your relationships. That's going to be in the show notes. Also, if you enjoyed the podcast, please take a moment to leave a review. I read every single one, and it absolutely makes my day. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.